Good morning. Please join me in prayer. Lord, you made us in your image to reflect your love and our care for your creation. And we reaffirm our calling to be your stewards of the earth whose bounty provides us life. We thank you for your creation, this wonderful handiwork of yours, which you entrusted to our care. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning on the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Valerie. I didn't, um, I don't send my sermon in advance to whoever's reading scripture, but Valerie, your prayer was basically my sermon, so thank you. Um, it's amazing how God, God does that. Like when, when we ask people to participate, it, there's just this, it's like the Holy Spirit just knits us together without us even knowing it. Another way um, it turns out that we're knit together uh, is by wearing the same color shirts, and I just found out, I didn't know this until I got here, there is a, a wives conspiracy today that... Um, they were going to tell all their husbands to wear yellow. So, uh, wives, really well done on that conspiracy. I don't know how many of this, I, I assume it was all on purpose, or maybe some of it was accidental. But um, we're, considering, uh, we're considering creation and Genesis this season. We're going to spend a few weeks in the summertime. Uh, early Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, is really the foundation of all of our faith. And we've never really spent a lot of time recently, it's been a long time since we've really thought carefully about just the first few chapters in Genesis. So for the next few weeks, next six weeks or so, we're spending some slow, unhurried time in Genesis 1 and 2, and hopefully we'll get to Genesis 3, I don't know yet, uh, considering what are the foundations of our faith, because it really affects everything. It's like the foundation of your house, if, if the foundation of your house has a crack in it, then actually the whole house is at risk of damage. And if the foundation of our faith has cracks, or if we misunderstand, uh, then the rest of our faith is affected. But in fact, the more we can shore up that foundation, the stronger the rest of it becomes. We started last week by considering what does it mean that God is the creator? And we, we 
did a kind of a broad overview of all of Genesis 1, which says that God made everything. And not only did God make everything, but he made everything in such a way that he demonstrates that he cares for and provides for his people. It wasn't accidental. It's not as if God created and then stepped back and let us fend for ourselves, but he created a hospitable environment for all of his creatures. That's a message that's important for a lot of us to hear. We saw last week that Genesis 1 really isn't meant to be read as a science textbook. That kind of misses the point. But the point of Genesis 1 is that God is for his people. He gives us what we need when we need it. And that's so important because there are times in life when things don't go our way. There are times in life that we feel like we've been dealt a a pretty bad hand and we think, okay, God, like, where are you in this? God must not care about me. And Genesis 1 offers a response. It says, you may not see it yet, but God actually wants to use all things so that you can flourish. So that you can flourish. He wants all of his creation to flourish. This week, we're going to shift the spotlight a little bit from God as creator to our role within God's creation. We're going to ask, how do we fit into this screenplay that God is writing? And we're going to really zoom in on just the last little bit of Genesis 1. And Valerie read a little bit more. We're really going to focus on Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Just three little verses as we ask, what does it mean that God has made us for a purpose and that he's made us in his image? Several times, the author of Genesis repeats that phrase, that we are made in God's image. And there's so much we can unpack, and we'll spend a little more time in future weeks One of the things it means is that every person has an inherent dignity and and somehow reflects the image of God. It also means, and this is where we're going to focus most of our time this morning, that each of us has a role, a very specific role in the story that God is writing. Think back to God's role for a minute with me. What is God doing in creation? He's active, He's creating, He's creative. And he's creating environments and homes where his creatures can flourish. Which means that if God has made us in his image, then he is calling us to participate with him and join him in making all creation a place where all creation can flourish. We actually get this through a couple of specific words in this text. Look at verse 26 if you have your Bible open. God said, let us make man in our image. And he's talking about men and women there. We know that because of verse 27. Let us make man in our image, in, his like, in our likeness. And here's the purpose. What does it mean to be made in God's image? And let them rule. Let them rule over all creation. And then again, we see it in verse 28. It says, God blessed them. And said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over all creation. God has given us a task, as it were. He has made us, the phrase that helps me here is vice kings. I know that's not actually a term. That doesn't mean kings of vice. That means something very different. (laughs) Vice kings. Think like vice president. Vice kings. And I know, I didn't say kings and queens, and I'm not actually the reason I I wrestle with. I say kings and queens and be more inclusive. But actually, at least for me, when I think about queens, a lot of times in popular imagery, a queen is kind of second to the king. But God has made all of us vice kings in a sense. 
that we are not figureheads. We are not just kind of there for show. In God's kingdom, women have the same authority in so many ways as men do. It's not perfect, but I hope that calling it vice kings gets that across. And so just like the vice president is second in command and has incredible authority and incredible responsibility, we, vice kings, carry out the will of our high king. And in order to do that, he's given us incredible authority and incredible responsibility. This morning, we're going to unpack that idea. What does it mean to be a vice king, or in the words of Genesis, to rule over creation? We don't want to get the wrong idea about this because ruling, especially for whatever reason, the way language works nowadays, ruling carries some negative connotations. We often have some wrong ideas about what it means to be a ruler. A lot of times when you hear rule, it means you're the boss, you get whatever you want, and you enjoy all the benefits and the privileges of that position. But that's not what rulers are called to, either in the Bible, but we know this from experience as well. I mean, rulers have the choice. They have incredible authority, and they can consolidate that authority and use it for their own benefit, but it it never works out in the long run, even here on earth. Just ask Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette how it worked out for them. The job of a ruler, the job of a king, especially in ancient cultures, is to promote the flourishing of his kingdom. It is to use his authority, in fact, not to benefit himself, but to benefit others. That's what a king does. In ancient Israel, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll often find descriptions of ancient kings. And actually, this is true in in non-biblical ancient literature as well. Descriptions of kings as shepherds. They understood this in ancient cultures as well. This was a reminder to the king and his subjects that the shepherd's job, and therefore the king's job, is to ensure that his flock has what they need in order to flourish. It's a caretaking role. It's not a demanding, overbearing role. In fact, Bruce Waltke, one of the best-known modern Old Testament scholars, for those of you who follow the best-known modern Old Testament scholars, uh, writes that in the Old Testament, the word righteous, when it's used to describe a person, essentially describes a person who disadvantages himself or herself in order to advantage other people. And the unrighteous, when you see somebody described as unrighteous in the Bible, it means they, they disadvantage other people in their communities in order to consolidate power or wealth for themselves. Rule over creation, God says, which doesn't mean be this overbearing, exploitative tyrant. No, it means serve all creation so that all creation can flourish. We actually get this. There's a paraphrase of the Bible. It's not exactly a translation, but it helps get the sense. A Hebrew scholar and a pastor named Eugene Peterson wrote that's called The Message. And the way he translates, he doesn't translate rule over creation, but he translates it this way or paraphrases, be responsible for every living creature. That helps get that sense that, yes, we are made in God's image, and that does come with a fair degree of power and authority over God's creation. It comes with certain dignities and privileges, but fundamentally, 
Our role as image bearers is about responsibility. You know, I've been, um, I've been really fortunate in the past three months. I've never been done this before. In the past three months, I've gotten to go to two military change of command ceremonies. And, and if you ever get the chance, like, just go. They're powerful, meaningful experiences. And we tend to think, or at least I've always thought about the military as this very hierarchical, top-down organization. And so officers tell, you know, sergeants what to do, and the sergeants, yes, sir, and they just go off and do it. They don't really think about it. You just give orders and you obey orders, and that's what the military is like. But one of the reasons these ceremonies have have been so powerful for me is that in both of the ceremonies I've gotten to go to, as both the incoming and the outgoing officers in command have reflected on their role, they invariably have, inf- have reflected on their role really as servants. There is the decorum and there is the order that you expect in the military, and yet it's been reinforced even in these ceremonies that a commanding officer doesn't exist just to bark orders and everybody shouts, yes, sir, and scurries off to do whatever the commander says. I'm not, I'm not sure that's there. Like, sometimes that's necessary, but, but that's not the broad goal. The foundation of a healthy command, and in the military they recognize this, is service. That the commanding officer even exists to serve his or her soldiers, the men and the women under his command, and to, to equip them and get them what they need in order to do their job well. That's what's going on here in Genesis 1. There's a command, so to speak. There's a rule. There's this fill the earth and subdue it, God says. But that doesn't mean we exploit it. It means that we serve his creations. We are stewards. We are caretakers of something that is not ultimately ours. We are vice kings, which means that we use the authority God has given us for the flourishing of others and for the flourishing, indeed, of all creation. How does this work then? How does this work? What does this look like? And how do we promote the flourishing of all creation? That's, uh, that's the million dollar question. And actually, in today's world, I think that's a harder question than maybe it's ever been before. Because our world is more complex and it's more global and it's more interconnected than it has ever been before. And in some ways, we actually have more say and sway over culture than ever before. So we have to wrestle daily with questions that people in ancient cultures never had to wrestle with. A a question as seemingly simple as, well, how do I vote for a, a presidential candidate based on his or her foreign policy? Like one, an ancient person would have said, what, vote? Like you don't get a say over who's, in, who's, who's your ruler. And foreign policy, like what? We don't think about that. So they've never even heard of other continents. Now that we know so much more about the world, and now that we like in a democracy, holy, what a different environment. It's actually much more difficult to wrestle, wrestle through this question of what does it mean to rule over creation, to be a vice king in a way that promotes the flourishing of all creation. It's important when we think about that to realize it's, uh, so, like, it's really easy to get stuck in the weeds when there's no clear right answer. It's really easy to be paralyzed and not know what to do by indecision. 
Remember here as we explore for the next few minutes, we're going to explore how this might look in various aspects that, that our faith really is not actually about perfection. It's about repentance and growth. And repentance means that when we realize that we've been heading in the wrong direction, then we turn around and we head in the right direction. We change our mind, we set our minds to head in the right direction, or maybe even a better way of saying it is a better direction. Because it's not even always clear what is right. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. That means in a, in a complex global geopolitical economy, We don't expect ourselves to make perfect decisions and vote for perfect candidates every single time. We we can't. Like, there's just too much information. But when we realize where we can do better, we adjust and we repent. And the fundamental question that we ask ourselves is this. Do we exist in this world? Do we live in this world as vice kings who exist and help the world in our small way to flourish Or do we maintain the status quo and keep doing what is easy or convenient or advantageous to us and our friends and family? So I want to spend a few minutes just thinking about some very specific individual examples where this plays out. My goal is not to tell you the right way to do these things. In fact, in some of these areas, uh, in most of these areas, I'm not the expert. Like many of you, even by just by virtue of your work, are experts in some of these fields. You know a lot more about it than I do. My job is not to tell you this is what's right, but it's to help all of us think, how do we live in a way that promotes the flourishing of the whole world? How do we vote, for instance? We're gearing up for another election season, slowly but surely, but it's coming, right? It's coming. In fact, I mean, national politics, we know it's coming. Local politics, it's coming. We've got another city council election coming up in just a few months. When we vote, how do we take into account the candidates' positions on whatever? We'll always take, we'll probably always consider their position on taxes. Do we take into account what they, their position on development? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe if we have a, a stake in it or an interest. Do we take into account what a candidate's position is on affordable housing? Maybe. I mean, as long as it doesn't affect my property value, right? But what does it mean to vote for a candidate in a way that promotes the flourishing of all people? And let me add, and Scripture reaffirms this an awful lot, especially in the Old Testament, that the powerful seldom need help to flourish. They've figured that out. That's how they've gotten powerful. So how do we vote in a way that especially promotes the flourishing of people who have less power in the world? And how much do we take into account a political candidate's character and integrity? Or what do I communicate when I give somebody a pass on their character and integrity just because they're promoting a policy that will benefit me? How do we vote? How do we spend our money How do we spend our money? Do we even think about how we spend our money? Do we think about our purchases? It's so you don't have to think about your purchases anymore. You Google something you want. You click one link, which takes you to the Amazon page, and you buy with one click. They don't want you to think about this. 
It's set up so we don't have to think about our purchases. But do we think about the things we buy and how much we buy and where those things were made and by whom those things may have been made? Do we spend in a way that that we can get the most possible value while spending the least possible amount of money? Do we spend in a way that discourages or encourages waste? Do we shop at businesses that treat employees well or buy from companies that demonstrate a sensitivity and a care for creation? Now remember, this is complex. Like, there aren't easy answers. So let's, let me paint some of the complexity for you. Do I buy the new sweatpants that, were, that are the cheapest ones on the rack that were probably made in a sweatshop somewhere or do I pay three times as much for something that at least I hope was more responsibly made? But I don't actually know the whole supply chain. And I can't guarantee that something was sourced ethically or responsibly or not. And that it was traded fairly or not. And I sure can't afford to spend three times as much for all my clothes. It's complicated. I, I don't know. But are we thinking about it? And, and as we learn... Are we willing to make adjustments that promote the flourishing of all creation? How do we spend our money? How do we work when we go to work? Do we do our job as well as we can and as competently as we can? Or to use the language of the past year, do we just kind of quiet quit and hope that the rest of the world, or at least the boss, doesn't notice? Do we do our work in a way that helps our coworkers do good work? I mean, most of us probably won't sabotage our coworkers' work, but will we actually help them get ahead? Do we stand up for justice at work when there's an unjust policy or activity? If we're responsible for other people, do we treat our employees with generosity? remembering that they're human and they have family lives at home and their own challenges that they're dealing with? And do we give our supervisors the benefit of the doubt and trust that they're doing the best that they can with limited resources and having to make hard decisions? How do we work? How do we eat? Most of these other questions are addressed more implicitly in Genesis 1. This one's pretty explicit, actually. It says God gave us every seed-bearing plant and tree for food. So, Chris, does that mean that we're, we're all supposed to be vegetarians? I sure hope not. Especially because some of you are really good on a smoker. No, actually, the Bible doesn't tell us to be vegetarians. People will point to this and say, uh, but actually, you can in Exodus and in Leviticus, um, we see God giving meat to his people. In the Gospel of John, we see Jesus eating at least fish. And in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul talks about eating meat with a clear conscience. The Bible doesn't command us to be vegetarians. Don't worry. But as a rule of thumb, the Bible doesn't command eating meat. There seems to be some freedom. And where there seems to be freedom, how do we use our freedom? How do, how do we eat? What does it even mean? I don't totally know. I know that some of you actually do work or have worked in the food industry, whether in a restaurant or distribution or creating food. Like, you know better than I do. What does it mean to, to eat? 
at their grocery shop in a way that promotes the flourishing of creation. What do I eat? How much do I eat? Where, where do I eat? Or with whom do I eat? I mean, Genesis 1 tells us that God gives us food. I give you these plants. Food is a, even food is a gift. It's not necessarily an entitlement in one sense. So do I receive my food and eat it with gratitude? With gratitude to God. I know this, this sounds far-fetched, but Paul actually drills down on this one too, and I'm not totally sure why, but he does. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Somehow it's possible to eat to the glory of God. What does that look like? How do we parent? How do we parent in a way that promotes the flourishing of our children? Or do we just parent in a way that either avoids conflict, here's where I'm preaching to myself, or that avoids inconvenience, or that avoids the risk of my kid embarrassing me in public? Here's the obvious Father's Day tie-in. Dads, it's been a long week at work. It's been a long day at work. There's just a lot going on and you're tired. How do you walk in the front door when you're just cooked? Or for those of you who work from home, how do you walk out of the guest room into the kitchen <laughs> when, you, when you're just cooked? And you just plop down on the, on the couch and you tell your family, maybe you don't use these words, but your expression, like you're telling your family, don't disturb me. Or do you, do you just put in an extra, two hour, extra hour or two at work? Because as hard as work is, it's at least easier than being in the living room with the kids. Or can you pull into the driveway? Do you pull into the driveway? And you might have to take a deep breath. Okay, Lord, I, I need patience that I don't have right now. Give me patience to love my family well and then walk inside to the inevitable toddler chaos. Do we, see, you see, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over all creation, which doesn't mean everything is for you. In fact, it means that we are for everything and everyone. Do we live for ourselves, or do we embrace our role as vice kings and give of ourselves so that all the creation for which we are responsible can flourish? Now, if we go through a list like, like we've just gone, like, it can be a real downer, I know. And we think about it and we think, oh, oh, shoot, I don't do that, I don't do that. And we get really depressed and we see all the different ways that we, we feel like we fall short. And the reality is, we haven't. Each of, this is true of each of us. It's true of me. We haven't always cared well for creation or for the environment or for our family. We haven't always worked the way that God calls us to work. We haven't always put others before ourselves. Let me tell you the good news. The good news is that even though we have not done those things perfectly, God has done those things perfectly. He, he made everything. We're thinking about creation. God made everything. He made everything good. Do you notice that? That almost every single time he makes something in Genesis 1, he takes a step back and he looks at it and says, that's good. He made everything good. He made a home and a way for us. And then we sinned, but like, it's not like our sin was a surprise to God. We didn't catch him off guard. He knew we would, 
Here's, here's what's amazing in creation. God knew that we would sin. He knew that we would fall short in the task that he's called us to. And then he made a way for us even in that. And then he gave of himself so that we could flourish. In Philippians 2, this is, this is how Paul puts it in Philippians 2 about Jesus. He says, even Jesus did not consider his divine status, his godness, something to be exploited or taken advantage of. But he, Jesus, God himself, made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. You see, Jesus made himself a servant and was found in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, Paul says, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Do you see? Remember that Old Testament scholar, Bruce Waltke, who says the righteous disadvantage themselves for the advantage of others? What did Jesus do but disadvantage himself for the advantage of others so that all the creation for which he is responsible for can flourish? You see? God doesn't just put us here and then step back and let us figure it out. He doesn't give us a job and then make us figure it out on ourselves. He leads by example. In Jesus Christ, God himself disadvantaged himself for our advantage so that we could flourish. He took the consequence of sin on himself. He died for us so that we might enjoy the benefits of new life. God, our true king, gave himself and cared for his creation, that's us, so that we might flourish. God, our Father, our good, good Father, exists for our flourishing. And he didn't stay up in heaven because it's easier up there and just kind of let us fend for, for ourselves. No, he, he pulled into the driveway after a long day of work and at incredible cost to himself, sacrificing his convenience and his comfort and his very life, walked through the front doors of our chaos to give us life. And he has made us vice kings. And we get to do the same. Amen.